This podcast is sponsored by Dompe Pharmaceutical. Repovid 22, a phase 3 clinical trial for adults hospitalized with community-acquired pneumonia and requiring oxygen support is now enrolling. To learn more about the clinical trial, enrollment, and a site nearby, visit repovid22.researchstudytrial.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's podcast. I'm your host, Samantha gambles Far, and today I have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. John C. Marshall, the recipient of the SCCM Lifetime Achievement Award. Dr. Marshall is also the past chair of the Canadian Critical Trials Group and the current chair of the International Forum for Acute Care Trials. He has been involved in multiple research programs and researchers around the globe. He is a well-known speaker and has been published in nearly 600 manuscripts. In this session, we will discuss how much more is achieved through research and collaborative practice. Welcome, Dr. Marshall. Thanks so much, Samantha. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Before we get started, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to provide any disclosures you may have at this time. I have few financial disclosures. I'm the chair of a data safety monitoring committee for AM Pharma, and I've been a consultant to AdrenalMed. I have many, many academic conflicts, including being the chair of the International Forum for Acute Care Trialists, and I receive Canadian federal funding for my research. Thank you for providing those disclosures, and it's such a pleasure to have you here with us today, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. So we know that research plays an important part in critical care, and collaborative practice and collaborative involvement is a crucial part of that. But we are, in 2023, coming out of our COVID-19 pandemic, and we're still feeling the effects of that. Can you describe how this global pandemic has affected collaborative research? Sure, it's a great question. There's nothing like a pandemic to really sharpen the mind on what we know and what we don't know. We saw that during the H1N1 pandemic, during the SARS pandemic before that. But the challenge is how during a pandemic do you actually launch trials and how do you address the deficiencies in your knowledge? It's striking that during the H1N1 pandemic, if you look at clinicaltrials.gov, there were perhaps 250 trials registered. During the COVID-19 pandemic, there are well over 7,000 trials registered. And I think it speaks to the fact that in January of 2020, February of 2020, we were suddenly faced with a global problem caused by a virus that we knew nothing about. We had no idea what this disease was going to be. We didn't know whether we were going to survive it. Was it going to be as severe as MERS had been a few years previously? How should we treat patients? And so that really focused, I think, investigators' minds on the need to immediately respond with research. And the global community did. Of those 7,000-odd trials, more than 100 different countries are represented, including countries that you would not think of as being involved in research before, Madagascar, for example. I think Somalia had a clinical trial running. Yes. You know, when patients are really suffering and we have lots of patient loss and lots of people died at the very beginning of this pandemic, you know, people were just wondering and looking for answers. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times those answers can be found Mm -hmm. in clinical trials. In talking about research and collaboration, Mm -hmm. you know, we talk about collaboration between institutions. But one of the things, you know, as a nurse practitioner, we always want to make sure that we are doing are having adequate representation, whether it's from a point of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and interprofessional as well. Can you speak to that as as it relates Uh, to collaboration? I would love to. 
you know, traditionally when we have done biomedical research, we've done it in upper income countries, Canada, the United States, Europe, Australia, and that's fine from the perspective of meeting the needs of people who live there, but most of the world lives elsewhere. And unless you make a conscious effort to try to expand the reach of a clinical trial, and you do that by collaborating and engaging with people elsewhere, you don't address the issues as they may occur, for example, in the global south. So I think it's a critical issue, and all the more so during a pandemic. COVID-19, when it first appeared, it was in China that the greatest burden of disease was being felt. So fundamentally important that China be involved in uh, clinical trials. The nature of the disease sounded like then when it hit India or Africa, it was going to be devastating. And so we really needed to think about how do we make sure that those parts of the world are also represented in clinical trials. The truth is, right now, our capacity to do that is quite limited. I mean, research is still a privilege of the privileged part of this planet, but increasingly it is being democratized and being spread to other parts of the world. Right. And even having people who do research that are trusted messengers to go into those communities and actually be able Mm -hmm. to encourage participation, because we know that there's a lot of hesitancy as it relates to research in underrepresented populations. Yeah, that's a very important consideration. That was seen during the Ebola outbreaks back in 2014, 2015, where there was just a profound level of distrust with the research process. And in fairness, that distrust was legitimate. I mean, we've certainly seen over and over again that research has been not necessarily directed to the best interests of the people who are the participants in the trials. Yes. Thank you for that answer. So in thinking about how we perform research and making sure that it's more for lack of a better term, Mm user-friendly. You had previously talked about common data platforms Mm -hmm. to help researchers not have to spend time reinventing the wheel. Yeah. When one does a trial, obviously you have to think about what's the question I'm asking and what data do I need to capture to answer that question. And traditionally, the way that's been done is that each person who starts a clinical trial asks those questions to himself or herself, makes up a case report for her, and you fill that out for the trial. You take the data out of the medical record, which may be an electronic health record, write it down on a piece of paper, and then transfer that into an electronic database. It's incredibly inefficient. It's really difficult to compare results across clinical trials. So I think one of the things we definitely need to do is we need to move to some kind of common consensus on what's an ICU. What does it mean to be in an ICU? When does the day start? When we count how many days a patient's been in an ICU, when did that day start? How do we write down the date? How do we describe the diseases the patients came in? What units do we use to describe the hemoglobin level? There are so many things that are trivial in many ways, but absolutely fundamental to being able to share data across multiple different research venues. And so having some kind of common core database is important. There actually have been movements in that direction. An organization called mm-hmm. SARC developed a database that's used to collect data on patients with severe respiratory infection, and they collected data on more than 800,000 patients with COVID-19. But they've kind of popularized the concept of an iTools. You would, in building your data form, you would look at the data elements you wanted to capture and simply select them, and that data element would be common across trials, and it would come with a data dictionary that described how you use that in capturing data. But I think that's the Mm -hmm. kind of model that we need to be thinking of moving towards so that we're all basically speaking the same language. And we can use it not only for data definitions, but also for tools that we use, for Mm -hmm. questionnaires that we use to make sure that they're validated and trusted tools as well. 
I think that at times in research, trying to find the right tool to use, whether it's a quantitative, qualitative research, especially for people who are not necessarily doing clinical trials, but to have that access would be very helpful to people. That's absolutely true. It's one of those things that seems trivial and that researchers tend to downplay or ignore. One of my colleagues presented a paper at this meeting looking at what the impact of the conclusions of a trial was depending on when you measured when a patient died. And it differs. You know, when we talk about living or dying in the ICU, it depends really heavily on when you measure whether that patient is alive or dead. Something as basic as that. Yes. And you draw different conclusions depending on when you measure the the I mean, and that goes into whether a patient is going to be a organ donor and they're pronounced Mm -hmm. a clinical brain death or whether they're going to be a DCD. Even Uh beyond that, there's a wonderful trial that was done by a French investigator a few years back, and they were looking at the outcome of survival. They were Mm -hmm. measuring it at day 28, and they showed, uh, I think, a small difference between the two groups at day 28. Day 29, there was a huge increase in mortality. And the reason that occurred is that once Mm -hmm. the patients had reached the end of the trial, the clinicians who were looking after them thought, okay, they're through the trial. I can now make the decision to stop life support. (laughs) So, uh, you know, unless we recognize that, you know, when we measure survival, we're the people who are determining whether the patient lives or dies, not the drug, not the intervention in the trial. So you have to know what the impact is depending on when you measure whether they live or die from the perspective of the trial. Uh And they draw very, very different conclusions. That's a a very good aspect to think about. So in thinking about all the things that we just talked about as far as, you know, a common data point, Mm -hmm. having different disciplines, after we've done all that, how do we integrate this into clinical practice, something that we see that we can use at the bedside in daily practice? Well, I think there are a number of ways. The traditional way is that you run a clinical trial, you ask a single question, Does daily wakening improve outcomes? Should patients cycle when they're in bed? Should we treat patients in the prone position when they have ARDS? You ask a single question. You say, I think it's going to be important if I show an X percent difference in outcomes. Typically, we use mortality as an outcome. Mm -hmm. At the end of the trial, you've got your results. And you say, okay, now how do we convince clinicians to do it? You undertake knowledge translation programs. You put it into guidelines. You set up bundles. You do all of this kind of stuff. And it's a very inefficient way of bringing knowledge to clinical practice. This really is a big advantage of this model that we call the platform trial. Because the platform trial can actually integrate the knowledge it's generating as it's generating it. So that by the time it reaches a conclusion, Everybody is being treated that way within the context of the trial. And it makes it an awful lot easier for an ICU to implement that as standard care and to change it over time. It may well be. One of the things that happens is that what worked in 1990 may not work particularly well in uh, 2023. And you conducted a platform trial, correct? Correct. I'm a Canadian principal investigator of the REMAP-CAP trial. REMAP-CAP is a product of the H1N1 pandemic. We had tried to launch conventional trials in 2009. And although we were able to bring together people from many different countries and agree on what we would study, by the time we'd written protocols, obtained funding, gotten REB approval for it, and started recruiting patients, the pandemic was just about finished. And so we only recruited worldwide, maybe 50 to 60 patients into that trial. Mm -hmm. So what we realized is we needed some kind of a tool that would be running and active in advance of the next pandemic. And that's where we came across this platform trial model. So how a platform trial differs from a conventional trial. A conventional trial, as I said, asks a question 
problem positioning, particular sedation protocol. A platform trial studies a disease. So it could study, for example, with REMAP-CAP, community-acquired pneumonia. And you could ask, okay, what's the role of prone positioning in community-acquired pneumonia? What's the role of sedation in community-acquired pneumonia? You can ask several different questions at the same time, and we call these domains. So a platform trial is studying the disease rather than the intervention. So you can have multiple different interventions being evaluated all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Once you've reached a conclusion for those, you can add new ones. In theory, the trial can run forever. Now, in REMAP-CAP, we add another little twist to this in that we use what's called a Bayesian design. So rather than saying we're going to see a 4% difference in mortality, we say we're going to run the trial until we are convinced that this is either better, no different, or worse than conventional care. And we do it based on a hazard ratio. So the trial is running. It's continuously looking at the data. And once it crosses one of those lines, it says, you've got mail, you've reached a data conclusion, and therefore you report that result in the trial. And that can be really revolutionary in the sense of when we're looking at H1N1 and we see this kind of global trend of these diseases, you know, becoming more transcontinental and moving over and that helping us and assisting us and having some answers for the next one that we know is going to come at some point. Well, and that was the idea behind Remap Cap. Mm -hmm. We selected community-acquired pneumonia because that's what a pandemic looks like. It's typically Mm -hmm. a respiratory infection. We didn't know COVID-19 was going to happen. In fact, it's interesting when Uh the pandemic did occur and we had a meeting with our steering committee, one of the people on the committee said, we're not ready. We need another year. <laughs> we had to recognize, we don't right. have another year. Right. We have to build this and you know, add maybe 100 patients in the mm-hmm. trial with community-acquired pneumonia. But nonetheless, we were able to recruit well over 10,000 patients wow. over the period of the pandemic. And we did come up with definitive answers about corticosteroids, about mm-hmm. IL-6 receptor antagonists, about mm-hmm. heparin, about aspirin. And we've still got a few more domains that are about to report. And we're going to continue the trial as long as COVID-19 is in the community. And we will also continue studying community-acquired pneumonia because COVID-19 is not going to be the last pandemic. No, we'll it's see. not. We just no, don't know what not. the next one's going to be. And, and I think that that will lend to us, like I said, being able to maybe have better decision-making capability for the next pandemic yeah, that exactly. we know that's going to come. So in talking about being able to replicate and make sure that things are, you know, the way that we move and research, you use an example to DNA that I thought was very revolutionary in comparing research and DNA together. Can you explain to our listeners more about how you put those two together? Sure. Let me try to do that. So as you know, DNA is really the basic material of life. Everything that's alive on this planet today, its existence is dependent on DNA because the DNA provides the map that determines what proteins are produced and those proteins are what provides function. So anything from a bacterium up to a human being to an eagle or an elephant. We all are here because we share DNA. Now, there is a fascinating book by a French biochemist by the name of Jacques Monod. He was one of the pioneers of molecular biology and one of the pioneers in understanding how DNA works. And the book is called Chance and Necessity. And basically what he argues is that life hinges on two balanced priorities, and they both are inherent in DNA. One is necessity. So DNA, the pattern of DNA, DNA reproduces itself. Because it reproduces itself, the next generations have the same DNA 
They share features with their parents. And that's true whether it's a bacterium or whether it's a human being. Right. But that is constant over time. But there's another really interesting element of DNA, and that is that it is subject to random variation. It doesn't happen with many of the base pairs, but over time, these can accumulate. If that random mutation helps the organism to live more effectively and to reproduce, it will be maintained in the DNA. And that's basically how, over a period of almost 4 billion years, the whole of life on the planet has evolved from a single primordial cell and the DNA of a single primordial cell. So there's this kind of tension between the constancy of DNA and the randomness of the changes that occur. View it one way, and that's how evolution is. Turn it around, and you're kind of looking at what we do at clinical trials. Right. Because in clinical trials, we want things to be constant. We want to know that if we're comparing something between two groups, the groups are similar in every respect. Now, we could say, look, we're going to recruit an equal number of men, an equal number of people with blue eyes, an equal number of people with diabetes. But there may be thousands of ways that they differ that we're not controlling for. The best way of making sure they're more likely to be similar is to randomize. So the constancy of clinical research is the randomization. But the research itself is dependent on randomizing to something that you're directing something that is necessary. You're getting this or you're getting this. And when you have that constancy of the randomization scheme against this background that groups are similar because of random chance, you can then say, okay, the thing that makes the difference between these groups Mm -hmm. is the thing that they were randomized to. So it's interesting how research is almost reverse engineering the history of our evolution. Yes, that's amazing. And when I heard you make that comparison in your talk, I was like, that is the most amazing comparison or synonym, or I don't even know what the word is at this point, to help describe what we do in research every day Mm -hmm. and how that is applicable to just how we are ourselves and DNA kind of mutates and things like that. So, you know, that's a very interesting thought because one could take this one step further. What we do every day we think is good. Right. Often it isn't. Often it's actually harmful as we study it. And so in a sense, research is also reverse engineering our practice. You can think of a couple of really good examples of that. Transfusion. When I was a student and a, a resident, It was mandatory to translate transfused patients when their hemoglobin dropped below 10. Right. We then did a trial. And actually, the interesting thing, the trial originally started out seeing if we could do better if we transfused patients to a hemoglobin of 12. But we realized that there's harms associated with transfusion. So we said, let's try transfusing at 7. And this was called the TRIC trial. And lo and behold, patients did better if you didn't give them blood. Right. We assumed that they would be similar, but they actually did better. Glucose control. Tremendous amount of work was put into achieving normal glycemia in the ICU. And then right. the nice sugar trial showed, well, right. people didn't do as well when you did that. So I think that, in a sense, research also reverse engineers the things that we have become far too comfortable by incorporating into our practice. And we say, look, this is the right thing to do because this guideline says that that's right. what we must do. Right. And that's where, you know, making it very individualized to your patient and their Mm -hmm. needs also is an important aspect of also interpreting research. Because from one of my sayings, my grandmother said, everything is not Mm -hmm. for everybody. Right. You know, you have to make it very individualized because at the end of the day, we are taking care of individuals. So final question is, and this one is a good one. How do we make a friendly environment for those people who are interested in research? I think... Uh, The assumption of that question is that the environment is unfriendly. And if that's true, that's probably one of our biggest failings right now. I don't understand how you cannot be absolutely enthralled by research because research is asking questions. Mm -hmm. It's 
the excitement of learning how things work, of seeing things that have never really been seen before. And if you as a clinician see that as being hostile or fearsome or something you don't want to do, then we have really failed in professional education in healthcare. I mean, I think what we really need to do is we spend so much time worrying, do I have the right answer? Am I doing the right thing? And we need to do that. There's no right. question. Right. You know, you don't want to do something really stupid. You don't mm-hmm. want to, for example, as I once experienced with an error in a, a hospital, give enteral feeds through a central line. That's a mistake. Right. And I don't disagree with that. Right. But we all acquire a basic understanding of what needs to be done. And what's far more important is being able to ask the right questions, not to simply recite the answers that somebody else has told you you should recite. I think that's a very fair point. And I think also, you know, perhaps the unfriendly environment is something that we create within ourselves because we feel uncomfortable with not knowing all the answers or uh, knowing all the most up-to-date trials, not knowing the most up-to-date research. And so there's a level, I feel like, of perhaps people having imposter syndrome of feeling like they don't belong in that space, but understanding that we all belong in that space because we're all interested in improving the health of our No, I think that's, I I think that's absolutely right. I think for trainees, it starts when you get into medical school or nursing school, your initial reaction is, did they make a mistake? Like there's a bunch of really smart people here and I've got to learn all of this because I don't want to harm patients. And if I don't know this, I'm going to cause harm. But it's also, it's added to, and I think, you know, healthcare systems tend to focus on errors, quality improvement, which inherent in that is blaming people for not doing things as well as you might. And I think that that's a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like to use the concept that, you know, we talk about healthcare as often being trial and error. And what funders, what policymakers, what the people who set the rules tend to focus on is the errors. And so they will tell you, if you've got this rate of nosocomial pneumonia, this mm-hmm. is an error, and we're going to deduct funding from you. Now, what they don't recognize is the consequence of that is you change the way you describe pneumonia so that your pneumonia rates drop. That doesn't help the patient. It simply right. makes your numbers look good. But I think we need to move from a focus on error to a focus on trials and recognize that we can learn over time, but that requires collaboration. It requires trust in the process, trust in science, and trust in the people who are performing that science. It's there with patients. I mean, Mm -hmm. patients get this. Clinicians, I think, and health authorities often don't. I think that everything that you said is on the precipice of everything that every clinician wants to put forth in their practice. Mm -hmm. At times, they just need mentorship, guidance at times, and sometimes it just takes a little bit of a push to get people going in the right direction. so true. I can't tell you how many times people have said, well, I must do this because the guidelines say I've got to do it. No, you don't have to do that. Right. It's a guideline. This is something you can fall back on. But what you really want to do is is what's going to be best for that patient. Exactly. And so if you think that this is going to be better and that's all you have, you know, we work with the tools we have, right. do it. But we have one other tool that we could be including, randomize that patient into a trial. Yes. And then you def- you can be certain that that patient is going to benefit or future patients are going to benefit from what you've done. Dr. Marshall, thank you so much for giving us a wealth of information from a lifetime of research, learning, and applying the knowledge that you have gained 
in working in a collaborative manner with so many providers. We really appreciate you being on the podcast today. Is there anything you would like to say in closing? Yeah, I would. Actually, I would, Samantha, I'd like to thank you uh, for asking some really good questions. This has been a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much. It's been my esteemed honor to be here with you. Dr. John Marshall, the SCCM Lifetime Achievement Award recipient and researcher and just all around inspiration to all of us. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. This podcast is sponsored by Dompe Pharmaceutical. Repovid 22, a phase three clinical trial for adults hospitalized with community acquired pneumonia and requiring oxygen support is now enrolling. To learn more about the clinical trial, enrollment, and a site nearby, visit repovid22.researchstudytrial.com. Samantha Gambles Farr, MSN, NPC, CCRN, RNFA, is a nurse practitioner intensivist at University of California, San Diego Health in the Department of Trauma, Surgical Critical Care, Burns, and Acute Care Surgery. She also serves as adjunct faculty at University of San Diego Hans School of Nursing and Health Science in its nurse practitioner program. This podcast was recorded during the Society of Critical Care Medicine's 2023 Critical Care Congress. Access essential education online through Congress Digital. More than 120 sessions are available on an easy-to-use platform. Continuing education credit is also available. Some SCCM members receive complimentary access to Congress Digital. To learn more, visit sccm.org slash congressdigital. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The SCCM podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Find more episodes at sccm.org slash podcast. This podcast is for educational purposes only. The material presented is intended to represent an approach, view, statement, or opinion of the presenter that may be helpful to others. The views and opinions expressed herein are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of SCCM. SCCM does not recommend or endorse any specific test, physician, product, procedure, opinion, or other information that may be mentioned.